As you take your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. I know we are going to look at Nehemiah 11 and um, most of chapter 12 today. That's our sermon text. But I want us to get the context of the passage that we're going to be looking at today. So we're going to go back to Nehemiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 15, and read a few uh, paragraphs, and then we'll skip to the beginning of chapter 11. So let us uh, listen to the Word of God this morning. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of the law, in the 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid, and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah and the son of Arah, and his son Jehahonan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. And they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be open till the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses have been rebuilt. And then turn over to chapter 12, or excuse me, chapter 11, and let me read verses 1 and 2. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in other towns, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let me pray for us this morning before we turn to God's Word. Lord, uh, we thank you so much uh, for the privilege to come and to sit at your feet in, in a sense, uh, to, to hear you speak to us your Word. Lord, there are portions of your Word that we would gladly sort of skip over because it's maybe difficult, maybe because it's uh, 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 unusual, maybe, God, because we just don't like it, and sometimes our heart's not always so submissive. But I pray as we come this morning, Lord, that our hearts would be, and God, that you would speak to us through your word and your spirit, Lord, not just to know, but to do as well as we leave this place. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. So, as we look back at, at Nehemiah chapter 6, uh, we come to a point where the, the wall of Jerusalem has been rebuilt. Uh, and, and as a result of that, Israel's enemies were afraid. We read in verse 16 of chapter 6, because they perceived 
that God had caused this to happen. Well, that is most of the enemies. There was one enemy, Tobiah, that did not appear to be afraid. Now, uh, I know it's been a while, and this is the danger of moving through a book at the pace of a preaching uh, pace and stuff. You sort of forget sometimes the things that were there, but there's what we call the unholy trinity, these three men that kept opposing Nehemiah, uh, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And Tobiah is sending letters to the nobles in Judah. And uh, he does that because they're bound to him. Actually, what that means is, is that Tobiah's son married the daughter of a high-ranking Jewish official. And so he was writing letters to them. And we read in chapter 6, verse 19, that the reason Tobiah did this, or at least one of the reasons was, uh, to uh, make Nehemiah afraid. And then the Jewish officials then were then taking Nehemiah's words and plans and sending them to Tobiah. So there were sort of spies in the rank. Well, uh, despite that, the walls were completed. Jerusalem was established. We read in chapter 7, verse 1, that the doors were hung, and then in verses 1 and 2, we see that Nehemiah appointed certain people to fill certain positions, whether that be singers, gatekeepers, Levites, and so on and so forth. He gives them instructions in verse 3. But verse 4 is the point that I want you to see that's really important to Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12. And that is, in verse 4, the inhabitants of Jerusalem were few. And so chapter 11, verse 1, picks up where chapter 7, verse 4, leaves off, addressing the need to repopulate Jerusalem. Now, you may wonder, why is it such a big deal that they repopulate the city? Well, there's a number of reasons, one of which is that the city is vulnerable without adequate citizens. Uh, the, the enemies are, are, at this point in time, terrified at the end of chapter 7. But, you know, if they perceive that the, the city is defenseless, that there's not enough people to protect it, they may seek to attack it later on. And so there needed to be more people in there. It also, because there was a lack of people, there was a lack of commerce for the economy. And not only for the economy, but also the temple service relied upon this commerce as well. And so it was necessary to have that up and going in order for the city um, to function as well. But remember, and I would suggest this is the most important reason, uh, as you know from reading the scripture, the Bible describes Jerusalem as a holy city. As a matter of fact, in uh, chapter 11, verse 1, uh, it said that, that uh, referred to Jerusalem as a holy city. And it will do it again in verse 18 of chapter 11. And as a holy city, it was a place that God promised, as Nehemiah said back in Nehemiah 1, 9, uh, that God would make my name dwell there. God was was saying, I'm going to come and to dwell with my people, and I will be with them, and they will be with me. And that relationship that God has with his people and his people have with God would be a testimony to the nations around them. Sort of sound familiar to the church, maybe? But that's what we see. But, but at present, it's not even a functioning city, let alone a reflection of the holy character of God. Now, if you recall from Nehemiah, as we've been working our way through that, uh, then uh, the people had 
uh, after they uh, this declaration had been made about the city at the end uh, at the beginning of chapter seven, then uh, Nehemiah sort of does a, a census to sort of see uh, who the people are that are there, and then we see the people listening to the word of God in chapter eight, and they heard the word of God read. And, and not only that, but they celebrated the feast that reminded them of how God had redeemed them and saved them as a people, brought them out of Egypt. Uh, they confessed and repented of their sins. Uh, they renewed their covenant relationship and commitment to the Lord in chapters 9 and 10. And they were identifying and establishing themselves as a godly community subject to the word of God. It's a beautiful picture of the, the relationship that we are to have with the Lord. And yet, they were not possessing the holy city. There was very few people that lived inside the city. Most people lived out in the surrounding villages or out in the countryside. Now, why would they not want to live in Jerusalem? I mean, the mere fact that lots had to be cast to sort of determine who's going to live in the city tells you that the natural inclination of the Jews of that time were not to move into the city. They wanted to stay where they were, right? And uh, I would first of all say, I, uh, one commentator pointed out, he said, you know, country life seemed as appealing in the 5th century as it does in our time. You know, uh, it's, you don't have to go very far before you meet a Kansan who says, I just want five plus acres in the country where I can raise my family on a small farm and teach them how to work, right? I mean, that's just sort of the, the state in which we live as, as Kansans. But it was no less of the case for the people of that time as well. But there's also a, a great contention between the Jews and their neighbors. Like I said, we need not to forget that there still are enemies that don't want to see Jerusalem succeed. And so when you moved into Jerusalem, you'd be putting the target on your back. And, and not only that, but it was also not an attractive nor a safe place in which to live. It might be very comparable to if the Lord would call you to move to the inner city of New York or Chicago or Los Angeles or someplace like that. And you might think, yeah, or Miami, someplace. And you just think, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know if that's safe for my family. But well, that's how they would have felt. Additionally, the people um, were very anxious not to abandon their farms and jeopardize their land holdings. You have to remember, brothers and sisters, that this was their inheritance that was given to them uh, by the Lord. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons why the people wouldn't have necessarily wanted to, to live there. But God instructed Nehemiah to choose a tenth of the people living in the surrounding villages and countryside to move in the city. And this was done by casting lots. Now, as Nehemiah lays out God's repopulation plan for the holy city of Jerusalem, he, he does so by giving us a list of names. And that's what chapters 11 and 12 are. If you just sort of skim down through those chapters, you'll see that there's very little explanation. There's little comments made here and there, but for the most part, from 11.1 to 12.26, it's just a list of names. Um, let's let's walk through those, okay? Verses four through six. It talks about those who lived in the city from the tribe of Judah. And then in verses seven through nine, uh, those from the tribe of Benjamin who lived in the city. 
uh, verses 10 through 14 are the priests. Uh, verses 15 through 24 are the Levites and, and the other temple staff that were there. Verse 19 uh, talks about the gatekeepers. Um, you know, we oftentimes, I think, think of a gatekeeper maybe as somebody who opens the door for you and stuff, just like people will do sometimes when you come into Kirk of the Plains. They'll open the door for you. That's, that's great. But they actually were more like security um, that watched over things and made sure that everything was done appropriately in the way it was. If you think about it, the temple in that time took in offerings. Well, where did those monies go to? You know, for us, whenever we take up an offering, that money immediately goes to the bank where it's safe. But they didn't have a bank. So they had storehouses in the temple where they put the riches. And not only that, but you had the sacredness of the temple. Only certain people were allowed in certain places and things like that. So you needed these gatekeepers to direct people and to keep things secure. Um, verse 21, you also have, it talks about the temple servants who lived on Ophel. That was a hill that led up to the temple at the north side of the city. But not everyone in this list lived in the city. Now look at verse 20 of chapter 11. We read, And the rest of Israel and of the priests and the Levites were in all the towns of Judah, every one in his inheritance. And so these were people who lived in the country, and then they would come into the city to serve. If you look at, you don't need to look there now, but if you want to write down 1 Chronicles Chapter 9, 1 Chronicles 9, verses 17 through 27. You can go back and read that, but you'll see that what these people would do is they would come into the city for a week at a time, and they would do their service before the Lord. And as you know, there was a, a rotation of service. And so, uh, so you have that dynamic as well. Then in verses 22 and 23, it talks about those over the work of the house of God. And in the context... You get the sense that these are people who had a, a, a choral ministry, or like of choirs, kids. And then in verses 25 through 36, you have the villages of Judah and Benjamin, where the people lived. And then, uh, then we're in chapter 12, then it talks about the priestly families and the Levitical families. But I want you to notice something here, and we'll talk more about this later. But in verses 1 through 9... He gives a list of families that came back originally from exile with Zerubbabel to come back to Jerusalem. So these are people who, who were not alive at this time. This, these people had come back to Jerusalem over 100 years ago. And then in verses 10 and 11, you, it talks about the high priestly family. And that sort of bridges the gap between that first generation and the contemporaries of Nehemiah. Where then in verses 12 through 26, you see the heads of contemporary families of priests and Levites listed there as well. Uh, so that's a lot of names. Uh, and you might think, oh my word, Pastor Rick, what, what are you going to preach on? Well, that, actually, there's a lot. History was immensely important to God's people, but they were not merely fussy historians, right? They weren't just eager to collect information about their forebears simply for the sake of of compiling a family tree. These are reliable records, and, and yes, they certainly trace roots, but they are something more than this. From the list, what we see is it's possible to discern important spiritual um, principles. We're not just reading a dusty and irrelevant catalog of names 
of families in these chapters, but these are archives which convey a series of far-reaching biblical truths about the relationship between God and his people. And I want to look at those principles this morning as we look at the text. The first thing that I want us to see is that God calls his people to submit to his will. That God calls his people to submit to his will. Look at verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the peoples cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. Now, I sort of wish this was Sunday school, because I'd love to ask the kids and to hear their, their thoughts on what they think a lot is. But I'm not doing that, kids, so you don't have to answer, okay? Because I know some of you would, okay? But what is a lot, okay? Well, a lot um, might be a stick with some markings on it. And they would throw those sticks, and those sticks would land certain ways with certain markings facing up. Or they may be stones with symbols on them. And they would take and they would throw those stones, and whatever symbols were pointing up would give them direction on, uh, on the, the question that they had before them or the decision that they had to make. Kids, the best way I can think to describe this is like sometimes how we throw dice. You ever done that where you throw dice and you get certain numbers that come up and you know that then you can move so many turns? Or maybe the dice you throw have symbols on them and it tells you how much energy or strength you have in the game you're playing or whatever. And, and that's what it was like for them. The, the casting of lots was a method used by both the Jews in the Old Testament as well as the disciples in the New Testament prior to Pentecost, by the way, uh, to determine the will of God. You see, that's how they would tell what God wanted them to do. So they would have this question, do I do this or do I do that? And they would cast those lots, and then depending on the, the markings and how they showed up, it would let them know, what they are to do. Now we have to understand that the Jews viewed the casting of lots as a means of finding out divine providence, of, of knowing what God wanted them to do, evidence of God's overruling and governance of all events. They understood that God could control those lots to have them turn up however he wanted. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, Proverbs 16, 33 talks about lots, and it gives you a good picture of how the Jews understood this idea of casting lots. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's every decision is from the Lord. So that's how they would determine God's will. Now, casting lots was very central in the life of, of Israel. And you would read about this over and over and over in Scripture. I'm not going to take the time to go through the different Scripture but the people who were chosen when the lots were cast considered the outcome to be a decision to them given by God. And so when they would cast these lots and your family was chosen to move into Jerusalem, they were like, okay, the Lord wants our family to go to Jerusalem. Now, I do want to just make this point, okay, because I think it sort of begs the question, well, do we still cast lots today and if not why not and the reality is you probably know that's not really a practice in, in the church today at least I'm not familiar with churches that do that maybe there there are churches that do but um, 
But one thing I think we have to remember anytime we read Scripture is just because something is described in Scripture doesn't mean it's prescribed in Scripture. In other words, just because it's stated in Scripture doesn't mean we're commanded to do it. Okay? So I think that's one thing we have to keep in mind. But we also need to make sure um, that... Uh, that as we look at scripture, that we follow what it says. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 26, you see the disciples casting lots to replace Judas with Matthias. Okay, but then after that, after the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, you don't see this practice of casting lots anymore. There's no further example of discerning God's will by this method. Um, and partly that is we have the Holy Spirit of God. We have the complete canon of Scripture. And so our way of discovering God's will is different from that of the Jews of the 5th century. We will go to the Lord in prayer and we'll pray for His guidance, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We will look at His Word. We'll talk to people who are wiser than we are in the Word of God to seek godly counsel from them as well. But we don't cast lots because we don't see that in Scripture. But the reality is, we still seek God's will, as they do. And the issues that we face are, as a result of discovering the divine will are just like the Jews as well. You have the decision, am I going to obey God or am I not going to obey God? Well, about 5,000 people, at least that's what commentators estimate, about 5,000 people were prepared to subject themselves and their whole future to the unfolding of God's sovereign will for their lives when those... Uh, lots were cast. These volunteers were prepared to change their existence entirely, not only for themselves, but for their family and for their friends as well, because they viewed obeying the Lord as more important than making a comfortable future for themselves. Rather than staying on their inheritance or staying in their country because they preferred, preferred the safety uh, as a result, rather than going into Jerusalem, they chose to follow the Lord. And one has to admire the commitment that these Jews had to do what God said and to submit to him. Now, from, from a human point of view, there was no guarantee in moving into the city that you would be safe. Uh, there was every reason to be concerned for the welfare of their family, but they had to trust the Lord. They had to trust that if this is where God is leading us, that God will take care of us. You see, what, what they preferred was secondary to what God desired. Discovering God's mind about their future took priority over every other consideration. Now, I think that begs the question for us this morning, what about us today? As we seek God's will. What about us? Having discovered the will of God, are we sometimes tempted to deny it? Are we tempted to sort of explain it away? Surely, Lord, you're not calling me to do this. Oh, no, God, I, I'm sure you wouldn't want me to go talk to this person. I mean, how many times have we taken the course of self-promotion rather than seeking God's glory. Having discovered the cost of such obedience for ourselves and our families, we find it one thing to justify the decision when it affects somebody else, right? 
as opposed to when it affects us. Isn't it very easy for us when a brother or sister in Christ comes to us and they say, you know, I, you know, I, I, I think the Lord is leading us to do this. And we're like, you need to step out of faith. You need to trust the Lord. You need not to waver. And then when the Lord comes to you to do the same thing, how often do we say, now wait a minute, Lord, you know, and, and we can become very timid. You see, the willingness of these men and women to comply with a difficult and a costly decision is exemplary, brothers and sisters. The decision, no doubt, forced many of the volunteers into a change of employment, and we know how difficult that can be. Um, some Christians uh, often, you know, will sometimes have to do that. Some Christians have left very lucrative jobs in order to do ministry for the sake of the Lord and where they got paid a lot less. It could be bankers and accountants who have given up good-paying jobs in order to work for a struggling missionary organization to help them with their finances. I think about my son, Ben, who went to Patrick Henry, and one of the things that impressed him was most of the professors were, were uh, people who had worked in D.C. just a couple hours away in very prestigious jobs, very high-paying jobs, and they left those jobs when the Lord called them to come uh, teach in this small, at that time, it was a very small, very uh, simple Christian college where they were just making peanuts in comparison to what they were making. But they understood the call to come and to prepare the next generation of young people uh, to follow the Lord and to be influential in the culture in which we live. Is God calling you to heed or submit to his will in some way, but you're resistant this morning? Are you willing to follow him wherever he leads and whatever he calls you to do? Brothers and sisters, let us be like the Israelites of old. Let us submit to his will like the Jews in Nehemiah's day. The second thing that we see here in our text is God gives us a, a variety of ministry to his people. He gives a variety of ministry to his people. Uh, as you examine these lists, they reveal a wonderful variety of people and gifts and, and talents. Uh, in verse 1, you see the leaders who already lived in Jerusalem. But in verse 3, you see other leaders from Judah's providences that came uh, to join them. And, and in doing so, they gave an example of effective leadership uh, by just their example. You know, few things are more powerful than the godly example of leadership that says, do as I do and not simply as I say. And these men showed the example by saying, I will follow the Lord. I will do what he wants me to do. And he, he, they gave that example of what we oftentimes hear today called incarnational leadership. But there was also not just leaders, but administrators. Uh, as you look down through the list, in verse 9 of chapter 11, you, you have not only the overseer over the city, but an additional colleague who was second over the city, as it says in Nehemiah 11.9. Uh, these were the administrators of the city management ensuring, as, as Raymond Brown said, he said that the city's streets and markets were kept clean, that proper sanitary arrangements were maintained, 
and wise building regulations honored. He said such important matters were not overlooked by Mosaic law. And I'll tell you what, I, I heard some of you sort of snicker today as I read the Old Testament passage. And, and it is interesting to talk about, you know, what to do if a woman grabs another man's private parts. You know, and you look at that and you think, oh my goodness. You know, but God is so concerned about the details of our lives. Even those things that we might consider private, even those things that we might consider awkward, are under the oversight and the care of God. And he wants us to live as holy people in every detail of our lives. And it would have been no less for the way that the city should be run. But there were also those that did maintenance. Look at verse 16. It talks about those that took care of the outside uh, work of the house of the Lord. The, the temple, like any other building, would have uh, decayed by the, been de uh, by the elements that took place. And so they need skilled laborers who were experienced that could repair these things. It may not have been very glamorous work, but it was necessary work. Just like large churches today need to be refurbished and be renewed, so the temple did as well. And it may not be work that people really notice that much, unless it's not done, but uh, if it's kept up, they just sort of take it for granted, but it was a necessary work. You have in, uh, in verse 11, it talks about, and following, about those who were responsible for the temple's worship. Uh, Sariah is described in verse 11 as the ruler of the house of God, probably a high priest. We don't know for certain, but probably. And he was supported by a team of priests, and these ministries were supported by the musicians. Uh, Madaniah was uh, the Levite assigned to do the work of leader of praise, as you see in verse 17. Uzai was one of Asaph's descendants, and he was one of the singers who led the service in the house of the Lord in verse 22. In verse 24, it looks like two choirs were singing responsively to, to one another. So you have all the workers in the worship of the Lord. But one of the things I want you to notice here is that these various gifts, these various social levels, were all working together in complete harmony. They were working together in complete harmony. You know, some job descriptions uh, in this text might seem more important than others, but in one sense, that's to miss the point. Uh, the regular functioning of the city needed all the gifts. They needed to all be present. Even those that seemed least important were probably the most important. I like the way that one commentator put it. He said, harmony, now listen to this, harmony is diversity working toward a single goal. Let me say that again. Harmony is diversity working toward a single goal. That's my prayer for us as a church, that we could be a church we are very diverse, there's no question about that. But that's beautiful and that's wonderful. And may it be that we live in harmony with one another as we're moving toward one goal. And of course, that goal is to please the Lord Jesus Christ and that we might honor him in all that we do. And so the Holy Spirit led the recording of such labor to remind us 
that the efficient running of the holy city, just as the efficient running of the church, depends on the skills of all. And of course, these are skills that God has given to us. He's given to us to serve and to love one another and, and for the sake of his church. I mean, Paul speaks of this to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6. He goes, the whole body joined and held together. I like that. Not only is it joined together, but it's held together. That's what keeps us together by every joint with which it is equipped grows only as each part is working properly. So the Lord says, not only submit to my will, and and in here I'll give you different gifts and ministries that I want you to do uh, for the sake of my work. But then thirdly, God works through covenant communities. He works through covenant communities. We must also realize as we look at these lists that these are far more than just a list of names, but they're a list of families in many cases with family ties and connections that stretch back for some over a hundred years. Children, grandchildren, maybe great-grandchildren are traced from this list. And the faith that we see evidence in the list was nurtured and encouraged in godly homes. I think we just sort of read these lists and we just sort of go, yeah, there was so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and then his son and then maybe his grandson. And it just, it's a list. But these were people. These were, these were believers in Yahweh who followed him, who, who nurtured their children. It's, it's a demonstration of God's covenant faithfulness along lines of discernible generations. Behind these lists lies the care and the devotion of parents rearing their children and the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. As you read these names, try reading them slowly and imagining here, and I know this is not in the text, it's just, but, but these were real people. So it's very likely that there may have been prayers of concern of a concerned mother for her teenage child. Or maybe the gentle instruction of a father as he explains a section of scripture to an inquisitive child of his. You know, all those things were most likely going on in these lists of names. As the psalmist declares in Psalm 145.4, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. You see, covenant community is especially underlined if you look at chapter 12, uh, chapter 12, uh, well, just that, that whole chapter, the first half being a list of priests and Levites who had returned uh, in that first generation, followed by a list of current priests. And the point that you need to notice is that the people are still serving the Lord, that the priest who came back was Zerubbabel, their children and their grandchildren had continued to be priests and they were priests today serving the Lord. There were Levites who had come back with Zerubbabel and their children and their grandchildren were Levites who were serving the Lord. Now, it's really interesting as I was thinking about this. Uh, covenant theology, that idea of covenant community of God working from one generation to the next, to the next, 
sort of does away with the generation gap. Now, I know the generation gap isn't something as prevalent as maybe it was in my day and time, you know, of what people were talking about, but I still see it. I still see it in young people who sort of poo-poo the older generation and to say, oh, well, that's the way you used to do it. We have technology today, though. We know how to do it right. And there's sort of a sense of not respecting their elders. Maybe not overtly disrespect, but just not being careful to value the wisdom and, and what they can hear from an earlier generation. But equally so, some in the older generation can think of people who are younger as just inexperienced. And, you know, what do they have to offer? You know, they don't have the years of wisdom and experience that I have. But you know what covenant says? Covenant says that God is at work through the generations. And God has been at work in the generations of old. So we can't put down or despise the work of those who are older than us. Likewise, we can't think that God is not at work in the younger generation that exists now. And that he's raising up to lead. And so covenant destroys that generation gap. So we see here that God works through generations, past, present, and future to accomplish his purpose. And we should value all as such. Is it not thrilling to see the true worship of God continuing into future generations? I, I just delights me to hear the, the young people and the kids singing in the church and to think one day, guess what? They're going to be the moms and dads sitting with their children in this congregation. They're going to be the elders. Maybe even one might be the pastor of Kirk of the Plains one day who would be leading the flock and caring for them. Is it not marvelous as God's people to show ourselves as part of a whole history of devotion uh, that the Lord is doing in his work in and through us? And so here's a pattern of covenant life and community in which we see genuine faith embraced by successive generations. God's promise to Abraham has embraced his children. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Indeed, children are a notable feature of every covenant that God has made. And that's why on the day of Pentecost, the words of Peter are so significant. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. In addition to the Gentile influx into the kingdom on the day of Pentecost, the covenant also reaffirms a commitment to the children. You know, some of us can trace a godly heritage in our families. And so we can give thanks to God for his covenant faithfulness to our grandparents, maybe our great-grandparents, our grandparents, our parents, to us, and now we to our children. Our desire for our children and our grandchildren is that they will own the faith of their parents and their grandparents. Others of us have been plucked by God's hand from an unbelieving line. Maybe you're the first in your family who is a believer. Maybe even to this day, there's no other believers in your family. And, and through you, God is starting a new line of covenant faithfulness. 
Now, I think we need to, you know, we'd like to talk about covenant as Presbyterians. That's good. But we also need to recognize that there's nothing automatic about it. Our children come to acknowledge the Lord as a result of God's grace and their personal commitment and faith and repentance. Our, our blessed duty is to rear our children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord and pray that God will regenerate them. But what an example we have here. And it should motivate us to establish our homes where, where the Lord is, is the very center of that household. Brothers and sisters, just as God sought to establish Jerusalem as a holy city and his people as a holy people with God dwelling in their midst, using the variety of gifts and talents, living in harmonious covenant community, may that be who we are as the church today. But we need to remember one last thing. It's not just what the Lord is doing in our day and time. It's what God will do as well. And that brings me to our last point. God's promise of a heavenly city. God's promise of a heavenly city. Jerusalem has a prophetic and an eschatological significance to it. Israel as a nation was actually restored to the land after 70 years of captivity, just as Jeremiah had predicted. And this restoration, however, did not correspond to the projected grandeur that was predicted by the prophets, indicating that, yes, while Israel was restored, it wasn't the full fulfillment of what God was going to do through his people. And as we read in the book of Revelation, we read in Revelation 21, 2 of the city of Jerusalem and how it prefigures what God was doing through his people. Let me read Revelation 21, 2. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bridge, a, excuse me, a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Aren't you looking forward to that, brothers and sisters? I mean, I love being with you guys in church. I love being part of the same body uh, here on this earth. But I look forward to that day when we will be with God in glory face to face and to dwell with him where there is no more sickness there is no more sin there is no more in one sense a distance between us and god but that we that we could behold him as he is you see returning to the city for these believers in nehemiah's time was more than an act of sentimental homecoming it was an act of faith and they understood in, in some way that they were participating in the purpose of God for his people. Brothers and sisters, we are called of God to heed his will, to submit to his will, using the variety of gifts and talents to serve the Lord in line with the saints of the past, with the saints in the present, and knowing that God will continue to work through the saints in the future knowing that one day we will be called of God to enter that new Jerusalem to be his holy people 
where he will dwell with his people forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us bow and let us pray to the Lord. Maybe you desire to give thanks to him. Maybe you need to pray to him, but let's silently pray to the Lord before we complete the finishing of the service. Lord, we're so thankful as we come to you this morning that you are God and you never change. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you for your covenant promises and the way you work through generation after generation after generation. Lord, I pray this morning that we would heed your words. Lord, that we would seek to follow you with all of our hearts, to love you, Lord, first and foremost, before anything else. Lord, that you would be our one true love, not only individually or as families, but as a church as well. Father, we, we pray today that we might uh, heed your will. Lord, I pray for any that might be struggling today with that. Lord, that we would rest in you. Uh, no longer battling, no longer trying to justify the things that we want to do, but may we just rest in what it is that you're calling us to do. Lord, may we use our gifts and our talents. Uh, Lord, may we honor you in all that we do. May you bring, continue to bring harmony in our midst as a church. Even as we grow, we pray. Lord, we thank you and pray all these things in your name. Amen.